0: To straighten everybody out right now all right your Medicaid facts and facts yeah yeah a friend asked me to freestyle about Medicaid when I murder beats I prefer to premeditate so I dedicate this pen work to my clientele let's make the crook shook and straighten out the lies they tell one most greetings the and welcome are the
1: to, to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's can't. patients come first podcast joining us on this episode is Kevin delibon Kevin is a staff attorney with legal aid of Arkansas whose work was part of the successful litigation that overturned work rules for Medicaid enrollees in Arkansas. He's also a talented MC or rapper if you prefer. That music that you heard in the podcast opening is from a viral Twitter video of Kevin, the legal lyricist, rhyming about what else? Medicaid work requirements. Over the next few minutes, we'll chat with Kevin about his courtroom accomplishments and his blossoming hip-hop career. But first, let's welcome him to the program. Thanks for being with us today, Kevin.
0: Yeah, Thank you so much, Julian, for having me.
1: Well, it's great to have you, and uh, I think this is going to be a fun conversation. Let's start with your work in the legal arena. To quickly bring people up to speed, a federal judge in March of 2019 ruled in favor of litigants who are challenging rules in Arkansas and separately in Kentucky that effectively require able-bodied adult Medicaid beneficiaries to work, volunteer, or be in a school uh, in order to maintain their coverage. States need federal approval from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to impose work rules, and the Trump administration has encouraged states to seek those waivers. Virginia, in fact, is in the midst of a waiver evaluation process at this moment. So with that background, Kevin, what do people need to know about Medicaid work requirements, the litigation you successfully pursued, and what it all means in the bigger picture?
0: Sure. I think the main lesson From Arkansas's experience with work requirements is that they're going to cause nothing but devastation to low-income folks. The starting point for all of this is that the majority of people on Medicaid already work. In fact, it's something in Arkansas like 57% and then another 23% have a disability and then 12% have caretaking responsibilities. And so um, the overwhelming majority of people are already doing the best that they can with what they've got. And work rules do nothing but threaten to trip them up through bureaucratic hoops and keep people behind and and struggling even more to kind of escape poverty.
1: As I understand it, in Arkansas, the work rules actually led to 18,000 people losing health insurance. And as I mentioned, here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, a work rule program was a condition of the approval of Medicaid expansion. Um, in 2018, and our state is pursuing a federal waiver to implement such a program. As you survey the landscape of work programs in other states and the legal rulings handed down so far, is it your sense that ultimately this may require some sort of definitive federal action, whether in the judiciary or the legislative branch, to sort of settle the question about work as a condition of Medicaid enrollment?
0: Well, no, actually, I think the law is very clear that work requirements are not permissible at all. In Medicaid. Unlike some other benefit programs, for example, SNAP, food stamps, work requirements don't appear anywhere in the authorizing legislation in the statutes that that undergird Medicaid. And so there's no basis for having work requirements in Medicaid at all. And what the federal government has been trying to do, along with the states who are seeking these so-called waivers, is basically use a very narrow waiver authority to enact what's really a fundamental radical alteration and basically destruction of Medicaid. Um, And so I think the law is pretty clear here. And that's why you've seen um, the courts that have taken this issue up rule that the work requirements, at least as approved by CMS, are illegal. Now, with the appeal pending to the D.C. Circuit Court, we'll see what the circuit court says and we'll see what the, depending on how they rule, what the Supreme Court of the United States says, if they decide to even take up the issue but here the law looks pretty clear.
1: And as I understand it that really was the basis for the decision in favor of your clients and and perhaps another way to to phrase that question is do you have concern given the sort of perspective on this issue emanating from the Trump administration and CMS that that could lead to sort of a fundamental altering of you know what we understand Medicaid participation standards to be?
0: So what the federal government is seeking to do right now through CMS is radically transform Medicaid. And the CMS administrator, Seema Verma, has not hidden that that's her intent and her desire. So they are certainly trying to do as much as they can in as short of a time as they can in approving all of these waivers and trying to maybe, you know, move the yardstick, so to speak, to make these work requirements seem more normal or acceptable. I mean, there's a few facts that go against them, though. One is the law. And a second is the evidence that we have from Arkansas about how these play out on the ground, which is that 18,000 people lost coverage in only five months. Basically, 80 to 90 percent of the people who had to go online to affirmatively report were unable to do so Um, The best data we have suggests that probably for every one person who is being terminated who may not have met the work requirements right at the time, the state was probably kicking off two to three people who did meet the work requirements or had an exemption. And we also have the data that shows a total, total lack of any kind of benefit to low-income folks. More people aren't working. More people aren't working better jobs. More people don't have access to health insurance um, through their employer. So those kind of things show us that all this does is punish low-income folks and doesn't provide any meaningful benefit in terms of escaping poverty.
1: And so you mentioned that the next step uh, in the legal proceedings around this question I think you said, as now the appellate court level and then potentially if the Supreme Court justices decide to hear this matter, the Supreme Court. So just from a timing perspective, what kind of horizon are we looking at um, wherein these questions could ultimately be addressed and resolved one way or the other?
0: Well, the Circuit Court of Appeals has said that it would schedule oral argument for no later than October. So my guess is that work requirements in Arkansas and Kentucky, at least, are probably gone for the rest of the year. I can't guess as to when the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals would issue its decision and or how that would affect um, the Supreme Court's timing uh, in deciding whether or not it takes up the issue, and if it does take up the issue, what that would mean in terms of a ruling.
1: But at the appellate level, you, I would imagine you are still engaged representing the interests of the clients on whose behalf you challenge these work rules?
0: Yes, ourselves, the National Health Law Program, which has been a major force in protecting kind of the side of folks who are on Medicaid, and also the Southern Poverty Law Center has been instrumental in this. So it's been a real team effort between um, some of these national organizations and then local organizations like Legal Aid of Arkansas or in Kentucky, the um, Kentucky Equal Justice Center.
1: We mentioned earlier that in addition to being a crusading equal rights attorney, you moonlight as a hip hop artist and as I said, you had a viral you had a viral video on Twitter in April when you performed a sort of an explainer rhyme about the Medicaid work rules in, in Arkansas. You also have a debut album out, if I'm not mistaken, that's named Plunge into Sunshine, and it can be purchased for download from popular online digital stores like iTunes and other common portals. Some of the album's content from from what I listened to seems to have a a definite social justice message to it that seems to align with the work that you do in your day job. If you would, can you tell me a little bit about what attracted you to hip-hop initially, um, the statement you want to make with your music, and how you find time to balance two professional passions?
0: Well, thank you, Julian. There's a lot there. Um, I mean, the first thing is that hip-hop was the music of my youth. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, my best friend across the street Uh, named Nick, his older brothers had all the tapes from Beastie Boys to Run DMC, later on Public Enemy, and some other really foundational groups of hip-hop in the mid to late 80s. And so that's what I grew up listening to and was most influenced by. And it was just the that was the music of kind of my circle of friends in the Bay Area. And so I grew up being influenced by all these legendary hip-hop artists that I just loved. Early on, I might not have known what the words meant, right? Uh, I might have just liked the rhythms or liked how something sounded. But as I got older, and I could kind of start to put more meaning behind the words, it started to make me think as well, right? Why are things this way? Or what is public enemy talking about? Or why is NWA saying particular things about the police? And then that started giving me a deeper look into some of the um, underlying social ills that that so many of us um, are facing. And that kind of really drove my interest in what I call do-gooding sort of as a career. I wanted to be some sort of servant. I wanted to um, help people who are facing poverty. I wanted to give folks, you know, some chance at stability or a better life. And that's really owing to hip hop um, and lessons from my family. So that's a really foundational part
1: of myself. It seems like that, that do-gooding that you say is reflected in, in, in the music and in some of the themes and the lyrics that that you talk about. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that, that hip-hop and your attraction to it and the lessons you glean from it are sort of now reflected both in your professional life as an attorney and obviously in your music. For people who want to learn more about your music um, or you, they can go to your website, uh, which is www. KevinDeleban.com. That's Kevin, K E V I N D E L I B A N.com. And with that shameless plug, before we go, we typically close each episode of the VHHA's Patients Come First podcast by asking our guests to name the one album and one book that they would want with them if stranded on a deserted (laughs) island to occupy them. However, uh, and Kevin, you are still welcome to answer that, but, <laughs> but since, since I like you, um, and I assume we're probably around the same time and age just based on some of the, the groups that you mentioned, the touchstone groups, I wanted to ask from one hip-hop head to another, who is on your Mount Rushmore of MCs? Who would you say are your top five MCs all time? And who would you say are the three greatest hip hop groups in your opinion?
0: Oh my gosh. Now we're getting into the controversial stuff. Leave aside (laughs) work requirements. Let's get into this. Um, I mean, Nas is probably my favorite MC of all time and one of the people that most influenced me. The other's Black Thought has got to be up there. Just, he's been rhyming as part of the roots for so long and is such a a lethal MC. Um, I always loved Common. I think Kendrick may have to be up there as well. And, oh, that's, that's four. Let me go ahead and skip to the groups. (laughs) I think, uh, for me, Wu Tang, without a doubt, has got to be up there. Probably Tribe Called Quest. And Outcast would be my third. How about yourself?
1: Well, those are all great answers. Um, I'm probably more in alignment with you on the groups than on the individual MCs. Um, I would probably definitely put Nas in the top five. But, I mean, for me, and perhaps I'm dating myself, but, I mean, the GOAT is, is Rakim. Um, yeah. So he would, he would be number one. Um, I would probably put KRS-One in that group of top five, I would probably agree with you and put Nas in that top five. And it probably gets a little dicey after that. I mean, black thought, great selection, you know, supremely talented lyricist love common, especially older common. I was, I'm struggling to round out the top five. Um, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, it it's is. Hard. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I think, I would probably put Big L just in terms of raw lyrical ability um, in the top five, and 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 again, it's subjective. I mean, I'm not necessarily evaluating it based on commercial success as much as I am on you know my my assessment of lyrical prowess. So those would probably be some of the guys that I would name. Tribe is my all-time favorite group. I actually just saw Wu Tang in concert last week. In fact. And Nas is actually coming to Richmond, uh, July 22nd, but I will unfortunately be out of town, so I will not be able to attend that show. So that would uh-huh. be, that would be my response. And then I'll, I'll let you uh, also answer the, uh, the desert Island question. What one book and, uh, and one album do you think you would take with you? oh my gosh
0: the one album and this might surprise folks because it's so hard for me to choose between all my favorite hip hop albums I may end up going with Rachmaninoff's Vespers actually which is a beautiful piece of choral music it just moves me so much and it would prevent me from having to choose between all my favorite uh, all my favorite hip hop albums and then in terms of books you were asking these most devastatingly difficult questions Julian <laughs> i guess if there was a single combined tome of Lord of the Rings, that might keep me busy. It'd at least give me like 2,000 pages to read. And maybe by the time I got to the end, I'd forget what was at the beginning and I could keep going through it.
1: <laughs> I think those are both great answers. And then I want to uh, tell you one other thing, and then we're going to conclude our conversation with you. Uh, just a recommendation. We are board chairman. Uh, for the current term with VHHA is Dr. Mike McDermott, who is um, an interventional radiologist um, at Mary Washington Healthcare, which is a health system based in the Fredericksburg area. And I'll just give you a quick recommendation. He actually is a very big uh, Hamilton fan, and um, he and his colleagues actually did a pretty um, high production value video about their transition to a new medical records system. And it's based entirely on. Hamilton, uh, and so they're in period garb and they're rhyming and singing. It's it's actually quite uh, quite <laughs> interesting. I, I'd encourage you to to search that out uh, online and, and give that a give that a view and see what you think. And with that recommendation, um, I want to thank. Kevin DeLibon for being on the VHHA Patients Come First podcast and we want to remind you again that um, if you'd like to learn more about Kevin DeLibon or his music you can visit his website which again is www.kevindelibon.com and that's Kevin, K-E-V-I-N D-E-L-I-B-A-N dot com thanks for being with us today Kevin Thank you so much for having me Julie. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. You can listen to this episode and previous episodes of the podcast through SoundCloud, Blueberry, or online at www.vhha.com. You can also send us questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions about future podcast episode guests using the email account pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that address is PCFpodcast at vhha.com. We also encourage you to connect with us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. You can contact us through Twitter using the hashtag PatientsComeFirst, and our Twitter account is at VirginiaHHA. Thank you.